Okay, so here's kind of our plan um, for the next three Bible studies. I told you last time, uh, remember we did the rich man and Lazarus last time. And that, uh, I hope most of you were here for that because today we're talking about hell and the two topics, I think, uh, go together. I've said some things in that lecture that I would want, you know, to make part of the case here in this lecture. And someone, uh, a couple of you have just kind of asked me about these topics, which are all kind of related. So I thought, well, let's just do it. We'll, we'll tackle all three of these kind of uh, related somewhat topics. So we're going to talk about hell today. Uh, next week, we'll talk about God's wrath. And then in two weeks, God's justice. Okay? Sounds like really pleasant subjects, huh? But uh, actually, for me, kind of um, coming to an understanding about some of these subjects was uh, very exciting for me personally. And I think uh, um, if there's a misperception of some of these, it, it can really drive people away from God. So, But today we're going to talk about the fire that never goes out. All right, let's pray. Dear Father, please be with each person here. And as we um, consider this very important subject, as always, we just want a clear understanding of you. We want to see what your involvement is in um, this difficult subject of the destruction of the wicked, what you do with people that uh, don't choose to follow you. Amen. Okay. First of all, how do you, you know, so just look at the list here. We're talking about hell, wrath, justice. How do you go about determining what you're going to believe about things like this? And one approach is, well, you know what? I have a pretty good understanding of those three words. I know what they mean. And so, well, maybe let's just look them up in the dictionary. Okay, that, wouldn't that be a fair way to understand the subject? So here we go. Hell is the place or state of punishment of the wicked after death, the abode of evil and condemned spirits. And look up wrath, look up justice, and there you go. Pretty much understand it. And I think uh, what, what has been so helpful for me is anytime you have a, a topic or a subject like this, to, as much as possible, see what the entire Bible has to say on that subject. Because oftentimes our preconceived notions of what something is, uh, what the Bible actually just seems to describe is, is quite a bit different. So we need to allow ourselves to, um, as we read the Bible, not look for evidence that confirms our opinion, but to allow ourselves to uh, be surprised and to take verses that don't fit our model and to try to build a bigger model or something that works better. Have any of you seen the Brick Bible? Uh, my sons both uh, recently were in Barnes & Noble and they have a whole Bible, Old Testament, one big card-bound book, New Testament, a separate book, and it's all Lego figures that reenact every single Bible story. And it's really, um, really amazing. Yeah, here are people suffering in the flames of hell. And... Uh, you can see there's a little political message here that they put in the, uh, in the Brick Bible with the Exxon um, shirt on there. Um, but what is just remarkable about the Brick Bible is almost, I think, every other child's book that I have ever seen, uh, it, they all gloss over the difficult parts. You know, when you read about um, boy David um, killing Goliath, you know, he's just a sweet little guy picking up some rocks with a little slingshot and he kills Goliath. And in the Brick Bible, uh, you actually see the decapitation afterwards and the pool of blood. And it's, uh, they, they, they don't sugarcoat it at all. 
sometimes I, I need to look into their motivations behind some of this. I don't know. But um, several times, uh, both of my sons, who uh, really are enjoying reading this, um, our son uh, woke us up from sleep. And we didn't know he was reading his Bible. But he came and he was so troubled because he read in the New Testament that Jesus said, unless you hate your father and mother, brother and sisters, you cannot be my disciple. And he was very distressed. This is a command. It's in, it. it's in the Bible. So we have some things that need explaining. And they just put it all in there. I think it's great. It gives us a lot to talk about. Okay, so this is probably our, our conception of hell. Okay, at least for many of us. Uh, it's a literal fire. We suffer and the suffering goes on. Well, how long does it go on? In some models, it goes on for eternity. Some of us who might want to call ourselves annihilationists say, well, we have good news. It doesn't last forever. It might last for hours or days, but it doesn't go on forever. But you know what? There's a problem with that model also. Uh, because how long would you survive in a fire? I mean, it'd be a split second, right? So why does it go on for hours, for days? Um, and, and here, the, the problem here, of course, is you have God sustaining someone for the purpose of punishment and suffering. So there's problems. Uh, there are problems with uh, with that model as well. So just just a few things to think about before we actually get to the subject of hell. We have verses like Lamentations 3:22 and 3, where it says, "Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love." For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to any human being. Now, does that apply for all time? That God does not willingly bring affliction or grief to any human being. Okay, is there a time where that that kind of uh, ethic, that kind of way that God treats us, comes to an end? Or I've heard uh, very often people say, "Well, God is love," but that always seems to raise a red flag in my mind. But He is also just. And the description is, you know, God is infinitely loving. Every Christian would agree God is infinitely loving. But there's another side. And if you reject God's offer of love and relationship, then God is equally just. And by just, people usually mean punishing. Which uh, I will just say I I don't get that. And and I never have. That if you are an infinitely compassionate physician, infinitely desiring that your patient who is an alcoholic will stop drinking alcohol and you do everything that you can for him. Uh, if, if that patient refuses to stop drinking, uh, do you at some point hate your patient? Do you torture your patient? Uh, do you, uh, is there another side to a compassionate position that would eventually lead him? Now, I think if it's, uh, it is true that you know, if you are compassionate, you care for your patient, you really want your patient to stop drinking alcohol, you will hate what your patient is doing. Right? You will see the effects of alcohol. It will be distressing. Okay, but but your your hatred would be directed more towards the the behavior and not uh, towards the individual. So that that I've just not wrapped my mind around that. The way verses many a multitude of them in the Old Testament that God's anger how long does it last for a moment? His mercy how long does that last forever? Okay, we could pile up lots of verses that repeat this, but. In the big spectrum of eternity, how long is our Earth's history in, in the spectrum of eternity? It is a moment. And so the, the reality, if, if with a certain conception of hell, would seem to be the opposite, that God's mercy it lasts for a moment. 
but his anger lasts for eternity. So it would just seem that uh, how do we how do we reconcile these kinds of things? Right. So Jesus mentioned hell so many times. So we have to deal with it and acknowledge. Yes, there is a hell. The question is, what does it actually mean? So we'll read just a few passages from the words of Jesus. Oh, this is another one, a brick Bible, actually. My son uh, couldn't understand this one. There's another distressing one. Mark 9. So if your hand makes you lose your faith, faith, cut it off. And again, kids, you know, take things literally. And, you know, I think that was a day where he'd gotten in a little fight with his brother. And, you know, man, there it is. Cut it off. <laughs> it is better for you to enter life without a hand than to keep both hands and go off to hell, to the fire that never goes out. Okay, and there's the picture of the people in the fire. If your foot makes you lose your faith, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life without a foot than to keep both feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye makes you lose your faith, take it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with only one eye than to keep both eyes and be thrown into hell. There the worms that eat them never die, and the fire that burns them is never put out. And many times we can just seems that that fire is eternal. A lot of verses like that. This is a quote from Isaiah, uh, very end of uh, Isaiah, and we're going to come back um, to that. Okay, here's another passage here in Matthew 3, where John the Baptist would say, I baptize you with water to show that you have repented, but the one who will come after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He is much greater than I am, and I am not good enough even to carry his sandals. He has his winnowing shovel with him to thresh out all the grain. He will gather his wheat into his barn, but he will burn the chaff in the fire that never goes out. Now, we are often selective in how we interpret the fire. Here, the fire in the Holy Spirit. Um, well, is that a literal fire? I guess the flames of fire did come on you know, the disciples, but you know, the room didn't combust into flames. So this would seem to be something describing something else, the fire of the Holy Spirit, but again, we tend to read that. Well, that's that certainly is a literal fire. Matthew 5.22, if you call your brother a worthless fool, you will be in danger of going to the fire of hell. So I think sometimes what would just be really helpful, uh, of course, here we have an English translation of all of this. Uh, we don't talk about the Greek and the Hebrew words very often, but sometimes it just would be helpful. We'll just put the Greek word in there and then let us struggle with it. And here the Greek word for hell is Gehenna in the New Testament. And this comes from, in the Hebrew, the Valley of Hinnom. And can you see just a little bit of similarity there? Gehenna, Gehenna, Hinnom. And this was an actual place. Okay, this was a valley south of Jerusalem. So when, uh, when Jesus talked about you're in danger of going to the fire of hell, well, the people in their mind would really associate that not with some future conception of something, but of a real place that they had real stories that they could identify with and, and uh, it would have some meaning for them. The Valley of Hinnom in Hebrew. So what is that? And there are lots of verses on this. I'm just going to read a couple of passages. Jeremiah has a lot to say about Hinnom Valley. So we want to understand what, what would the people listening to Jesus, uh, what kind of conception would they have? So this is from Jeremiah 7. The people of Judah have done an evil thing. They have placed their idols, which I hate, in my temple, and have defiled it. In Hinnom Valley, they have built an altar called Topheth. So this is the, the altar for sacrifice to uh, um, uh, foreign gods. 
so that they can sacrifice their sons and daughters in the fire. And many times it's Hinnom Valley, it's not only associated with worship of Baal and Moloch, but we're even told about the details, it's, it's child sacrifice. I did not command them to do this. It did not even enter my mind. I always thought that's interesting, the uh, way God expresses it here. And so the time will come when it will no longer be called Topheth or Hinnom Valley, but Slaughter Valley. They will bury people there because there will be nowhere else to bury them. The corpses will be food for the birds and the wild animals, and there will be no one to scare them off. And so many times, Hinnom Valley, it almost seems uh, prophetically, is talking about piles of corpses. So if we go back, the very first reference to Hinnom Valley is uh, all the way back in Joshua when the people are coming into the Promised Land. So Hinnom Valley, which again was on the south side of the hill, where the Jebusite city of Jerusalem was located. And so this was before David conquered Jerusalem and made it the part of Israel. Okay, so this, there was this well-known Hinnom Valley on the south of Jerusalem. Okay, so we said there was child sacrifice there. And it's just one example here in Second Chronicles and Second Kings about uh, wicked King Ahaz, who became king at the age of 20. And he ruled in Jerusalem for 16 years. He did what was not pleasing to the Lord and followed the example of the kings of Israel. He had metal images of Baal made, burn incense in Hinnom Valley. And this was the place of worship of the disgusting foreign gods. And even sacrificed his own sons as burnt offerings to idols, imitating the disgusting practice of the people whom the Lord had driven out of the land as the Israelites advanced. So again, for the, the Jewish audience who certainly knew their Bibles very well, uh, this, these are the kinds of associations that they're making when Jesus is talking about hell. We make an entirely different, futuristic uh, kind of uh, association. Okay, good King Josiah tried to undo all of this. So he desecrated Topheth. Remember, that's the, the altar, the, the pagan place of worship in Hinnom Valley, so that no one could sacrifice his son or daughter as a burnt offering to the god Moloch. And I think I've mentioned several times, Moloch was that god where, you know, the metal image, they would heat the hands up and put babies um, inside the hot metal hands. It's just amazing to think that even Solomon worshipped Moloch for a period um, of his life. Okay, so an interesting passage here in, in Isaiah. Okay, talking about Topheth, which uh, literally has become uh, to the Jewish people as a place to be spit on. The place of burning has long been ready for the Assyrian king. So now we're actually talking about an event that happened. The fire pit is piled high with wood. The breath of the Lord, like fire from a volcano, will set it ablaze. So we just read on in Isaiah, wondering what is this talking about, this Assyrian king. And just a few chapters, we read about how the Assyrian king and all of his forces came and surrounded Jerusalem. And good king Hezekiah prayed. And then here's a description, Isaiah 37. The Lord's angel went out and killed 185,000 soldiers in the Assyrian camp. And when the Judeans got up early in the morning, they saw all the corpses. Okay, now there's a separate issue here, which uh, we talked about so much, the God of the Old Testament. So we're going to set that aside, okay, about the angel going out and killing 185,000 soldiers. But this is, these two verses are related. The warning here about Topheth, Hinnom Valley, that this is where the Syrian king would come to his end. And sure enough, those 185,000 uh, soldiers, when the people got up in the morning, there they were, dead, corpses. 
Okay, but we want to keep, uh, I think, associating this all the way through. So we come to this verse here in the end of Isaiah 66, talking about the people in Jerusalem. And as they leave, they will see all the corpses of those who have rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will never die. That's what Jesus quoted from. And the fire that burns them will never be put out. The sight of them will be disgusting to all people. Now, does this relate to the story of the Assyrian king and all of his forces dying in Hinnom Valley? Um, and now we, we have another description of those corpses. And if you want to read a good book on this subject, uh, it's a book called uh, Two Views of Hell. And uh, they have a really some good uh, explanation for a number of these difficult passages. But and, and it's two people arguing back and forth. One is pro-literal burning, eternal fire of hell. And then um, uh, there's the other description. So here's the argument on this verse that this is the most misunderstood, misused, and misapplied passage in the Bible on the subject of hell. We must read the context. So I just tried to give you the context there about the Assyrian king and all of his forces. This symbolic picture of the future reflects an actual incident that Isaiah described in chapter 37, that when the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies, the corpses. In chapter 66, Isaiah anticipates the same scene on a massive scale at the end of time. In this prophetic picture, as in the historical event of Isaiah's day, the righteous view the dead bodies of the wicked. They see corpses, not living people. They view destruction, not conscious misery. Discarded corpses are fit only for worms or maggots and fire, which are both insatiable agents of disintegration and decomposition. The people were dead. Okay, they weren't suffering in the fire and with the maggots and, and all of that. So to the Hebrew mind, both worms and fire signify disgrace and shame. Worms and fire also indicate complete destruction. For the maggot in this picture does not die, but continues to feed so long as there is anything to eat. This passage of scripture says nothing about conscious suffering and certainly nothing about suffering forever. So I always like as much as possible if we can, in the Bible, relate a meaning to a specific historical event and see what had actually happened, what was the meaning. Um, I, I find that very helpful. But that doesn't answer, of course, all of our questions. So coming back here to Hinnom Valley, we want to, the big point to take away is that in the whole Old Testament, this is associated with pagan worship, child sacrifice, events of destruction, and with piles of corpses. Okay, that's the crystallized uh, meaning there of Hinnom Valley. So Gehenna, then in the New Testament, uh, would have that meaning. And there's also tradition, and I think there, there may be some good evidence of this, that Gehenna in the time of Jesus was the garbage dump where the fires were continuously burning. Perhaps that same area there in Hinnom Valley. So keep the fire burning, you bring the garbage out there. You keep things, the fire keeps uh, burning. So again, it would have uh, perhaps a contemporary meaning for the people in, in Jesus' day. And if that is so, then Jesus' hearers would not have known Gehenna as an important place where maggots, uh, would have known Gehenna as an important place where maggots and fire race to consume the garbage, refuse, and offal, dumped there each day. So it's the garbage dump. And the 21st century Jewish historian Josephus says that this valley was heaped with the dead bodies of Jews following the Roman siege of Jerusalem in AD 70. So again, another event after the siege of Jerusalem where just a horrible death and destruction and the dead bodies were piled 
um, up in Hinnom Valley in that time. Okay, so let's let's go back now to the Old Testament. And a, a term here that's sometimes translated as hell is Sheol. Okay, this is in 65 times in the Old Testament. And what can be quite misleading um, here is, again, it just would be nice if just the word Sheol was used. And then let us grapple with, well, what's the meaning of Sheol? But in the King James, that one word gets translated variously. Sometimes they would choose the word hell. Sometimes the pit. Sometimes the grave. It's nice when a version like the American Standard Version, just all the way through, it's Sheol. And then you as the reader have to kind of grapple. What does that mean, Sheol? Okay, uh, the NIV uses consistently uh, just the grave. Okay, and so literally, and I think if we just go through all of these, the, the word Sheol just means you're dead, you're in the grave. Okay, so gravedom would be a good uh, literal translation. So we can sometimes, if you're reading the King James, you read about hell and you, you may come perhaps to a false uh, description. And in the Greek, Hades, which all the way through the New Testament, again, is consistent with just the grave, or you're dead. The only exception where there is any suffering described using the word Hades is what we talked about two weeks ago, the rich man and Lazarus. Where the rich man dies, he goes to Hades, which is, should just be the grave, but there there is suffering. That is the only one uh, exception. So just uh, some examples where this word Sheol is used in the in the New Testament, the Old Testament, talking about good, righteous people, Jacob, David, and Job. Okay, here with Jacob in Genesis 35, all his other sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. He said, no, I will mourn for my son until I die. Now, so we want to translate that until I go to hell. No, this Sheol is just the place where you're dead. And David would say in, in Psalm 49, but God will redeem my life from the grave. Not hell. Sheol is just where you die. And in Job, if only you would hide me in the grave. And obviously, hell would, you know, with our contemporary meaning of hell, would not fit with what Job is meaning in this time. Okay? So Sheol is just the grave. Now, what did that mean? Um, and uh, here, thinking about what did the what was the soul? What does that mean in the Old Testament? And I like this description here, that the ancient Hebrews had no idea of an immortal soul living a full and vital life beyond death. Human beings, like the beasts of the field, are made of the dust of the earth. And at death, they return to that dust. The Hebrew word nephesh, traditionally translated living soul, but more properly understood as living creature, is the same word used for all breathing creatures and refers to nothing immortal. And so the, the best example of this um, here in the King James where the Lord formed man out of the dust of the ground, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And we often read into that some separate being, that when you die, there's there's something else that is there, a soul that floats off and, and goes somewhere. But I think if you would read just any uh, Jewish interpretation of this, that the meaning is really that uh, here in the NRSV, that God breathed the nostrils, the breath of life, and the man became a living being, or man began to live. So the soul is not something separate and distinct. It even refers to the, the blood in the veins. Okay, so the, the Jewish conception here of the soul is not some separate entity. 
and, and this is not the time to talk about the, the doctrine of the immortality of the soul, but um, maybe we should do that sometime. But you just read a verse like, uh, or a book like Ezekiel, and 92 times God refers to Ezekiel as mortal man. Okay, and in the New Testament, you know, Paul said that God will change us from mortals into immortals. So I, I'm, without making a very good case for it here, going to suggest that that we are mortal individuals who need to be transformed. So what actually is hell, having said all that? Now, Billy Graham, who uh, many times would seem to take quite a literal description of hell, uh, I really appreciated that he said this about hell. I think it really reflects some humility. He said, the only thing I could say for sure is that hell means separation from God. We are separated from his light, from his fellowship. That is going to be hell. When it comes to a literal fire, I don't preach it because I'm not sure about it. When the scripture uses fire concerning hell, that is possibly possibly an illustration of how terrible it's going to be. Not fire, but something worse, a thirst for God that cannot be quenched. Okay, that's kind of interesting for someone like uh, Billy Graham. Wasn't sure, but as far as he could tell, it, it meant something like separation from God. And I think we could make a case for that. For example, just compare these two verses in Matthew, where Jesus said they will be thrown into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So in one case, if you reject God, you're thrown into the fiery furnace where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, we have another very similar description here in Matthew 8, that the heirs of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So in one point, it's fire, furnace, and another parable... Uh, it's the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So these are these are symbols that are trying to paint a picture for us, or trying to describe something. So I think you could use this to support uh, what Billy Graham was talking about there. But I think there's um, I think there's something much more important here to talk about. So let's just go through and talk about some actual stories about fire in the Bible. And uh, I always like this one here. I think it's quite interesting. You remember Aaron's evil sons, Nadab and Abihu, that they disobeyed the Lord by burning before him the wrong kind of fire. Okay, what happened to them? So fire blazed forth from the Lord's presence and burned them up. And they died there before the Lord. And then Moses called for Aaron's cousins and he said to them, come forward and carry away the bodies of your relatives from in front of the sanctuary to a place outside the camp. So just imagine... Here's, you're just told by Aaron, this is what happened. Fire blazed forth from God's own presence and burned them up, and you are now assigned to go in and carry them out. And what do you imagine they would look like when you walk in? What's going to be left to carry out of the tabernacle here when God's own fire burns them up? Okay, and I just find this description quite interesting, that they came forward and they picked them up by their garments, so whatever it was that, from God's own presence that consumed them, it didn't burn their garments. And he carried them out of the camp just as Moses had commanded. So I think it would be helpful if we just use every example we have of fire and let's try to, try to build something that, that we could actually make a, a practical model or application. So, so many times here, we're told who the fire is. In Daniel 4, the Lord your God is like a flaming fire, and in Hebrews 12, God is a consuming fire. So I would like to 
kind of go with the position that the fire is actually God himself. Now, what does that mean? Let's try to, to see if we can come to some understanding there. When Moses talked to the burning bush, okay, the bush was all aflame, and he talked with God. And I love our kids' video of this, where after Moses, you know, in the cartoon, um, after he is done talking with God, he goes over and picks a leaf. Okay, it wasn't singed, it wasn't harmed. So the fire of God's presence, which filled this bush, was not harmful to the bush. It didn't burst into flames. And just a, a few chapters later, God comes down on Mount Sinai. And the glory of the Lord appeared to the Israelites like a devouring fire on top of the mountain. Okay, was there a forest fire? Okay, it was like a fire, but it wasn't a fire that was harmful to grass or trees that is described. Okay, we know that Moses spoke with God as a man speaks with a friend face to face. And so when Moses went into the tent of the Lord's presence to speak to the Lord, he would take the veil off. You'd think that's when you'd put the veil on. But when he'd go into God's presence, he took the veil off. And when he came out, he would tell the people of Israel everything that he'd been commanded to say, and they would see that his face was shining. Okay, now we wouldn't say these were third-degree burns, right? He's, he's talking with God, and his face, somehow, it looks shiny. It's, it's reflecting something. And then he would put the veil back on, and the reason he put it on is it was distressing to the people. Okay, just seeing the reflected glory of God in the face of Moses, there was distress, and they asked him, please, put a veil on. So he wore the veil to shield somewhat the reflected glory of God that was in his own face. In Leviticus 9, Moses and Aaron went into the tent of the Lord's presence, and when they came out, they blessed the people. And many times it's described that the dazzling light of the Lord's presence appeared to all the people. Suddenly the Lord sent a fire, and it consumed the burnt offering and the fat parts on the altar. When the people saw it, they shouted and bowed down. So many times God's glory, like a fire, filled the tabernacle. And what's the tabernacle made of? Sheets, I mean, things that would just burst into flames, right? Never was harmed by this fire that came from God himself. Okay, King Solomon, when he gave his uh, uh, brilliant prayer in Second Chronicles, fire came down from heaven, burned up the sacrifices that had been offered, and the dazzling light of the Lord's presence filled the temple. Because the temple was full of the dazzling light, the priests could not enter it. And when the people of Israel saw the fire fall from heaven and the light fill the temple, they fell face downward on the pavement, worshiping God and praising him for his goodness and his eternal love. So again, so many of these examples where it's fire, it's fire. I think the, the best case for what actually was it, well, it's a little different than the fire we get when we light a match. Now, uh, two very different reactions to this fire. If we take the position that the fire is God himself. Um, here in Psalm 68, Notice the contrast. As wax melts in front of the fire, so do the wicked perish in his presence. But the righteous are glad and rejoice in his presence. Notice God hasn't changed. Okay, It is a, a different reaction in two groups of people. In, for the wicked, as wax melts in front of the fire, so do the wicked perish in his presence. But the righteous are glad and rejoice in his presence. Okay, So it's, it's two contrasting reactions to the same God. They are happy and shout for joy. 
Perhaps Isaiah is maybe one of the best descriptions of what it is to come into the presence of God. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah describes this incredible scene here where the sound of their voices made the foundation of the temple shake. The temple itself became filled with smoke. And I said, there is no hope for me. I am doomed because every word that passes my lips is sinful. And I live among a people whose every word is sinful. And yet with my own eyes, I have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And then one of the creatures flew down to me carrying a burning coal that he had taken from the altar and with a pair of tongs. And, and you know the story. And of course, the coal wasn't harmful to Isaiah. Okay, this, this is something that uh, is, is different than a literal coal that touched his lips. But I think what's interesting here is, is so many times when even a good person like Isaiah comes into the immediate presence of God, it seems that two things happen. There is a reality of seeing God for who he really is. And at the same time, there is a reality of seeing yourself for who you are. And in, in the case of Isaiah, there was um, guilt in that encounter. Okay, he saw things differently than he had before. And so, of course, you know what happened. He touched my lips with a burning coal and said, this has touched your lips, and now your guilt is gone, and your sins are forgiven. And then I heard the Lord say, whom shall I send? And now Isaiah is ready to go um, give his message. Okay, so um, for Isaiah, there was a moment of seeing things differently than he had seen them before, and that was distressing. But then right away, God is, seems eager to reassure him, and right away he's encouraged to, to go give uh, the message. I know I'm going through a lot of verses here, but I feel like I've got to make a, as good a case as I can for this. So we're uh, going to go through just a few more examples. I think this one in Isaiah 33, perhaps if you want to read maybe the best description of this, uh, read chapter 33 of Isaiah. This is very interesting. The Lord says, Now I will do something and be greatly praised. Your deeds are straw that will be set on fire by your very own breath. So that the fire actually seems to be something that, that comes from within. You will be burned to ashes like thorns in a fire. Everyone, both far and near, come look at what I have done. See my mighty power. Now, don't stop reading. The sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. And notice what they're asking. Who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who of us can dwell with everlasting burning? So who is the fire? Who is the everlasting burning? I mean, they're talking about coming into the presence of God. Who can dwell in that consuming fire? Who can dwell in the everlasting burning? And if you read on in this chapter, you read that there are people who do dwell in God's presence. Well, he who walks righteously and speaks what is right and so on does dwell in the presence of God. And there's, there is none of the distress and, and all of that. So again, God is the same but it's a different reaction of people coming into his presence. Okay, one more in the Old Testament. End of Malachi. Where the Lord Almighty says, the day is coming when all proud and evil people will burn like straw. On that day they will burn up and there will be nothing left of them. Okay, that wouldn't suggest an ongoing forever kind of a burning. But for you who obey me and my, my saving power will rise on you like the sun and bring healing like the sun's rays. It's, notice the same thing. These people are exposed to a certain type of fire. There's destruction. These people are exposed to fire and the sun brings healing like the sun's rays. You'll be free and happy as calves let out of the stall. So again, God is 
who he is, God's love personified. Okay, but, but there's a different reaction. And I'm not sure how much, um, maybe I shouldn't put a specific example on this. I don't know exactly how it will be. But I imagine someone like, uh, let's just take the worst person maybe we can imagine. Someone like Hitler, okay, comes into the presence of God. And, you know, Hitler has a certain mindset about a certain group of people. He has a certain mindset about, um, you know, hatred, obviously, towards uh, Jewish people and pride and using force and power to selfishly try to conquer the world. Now, what happens when he comes into God's presence and sees that God is the polar opposite for all of that. He sees God's love for Jewish people. He sees that God himself became a Jew. All of the apostles were Jews. And that that whole mindset, that he's been looking at things like a telephone pole that's crooked, but he really believes it's crooked, and now sees, well, it's actually straight. Okay, that God himself is not selfish. That God, even though he has all power, does not use his power the way Hitler used his power. And I think there's just... Boy, distress in that. Everything that you believed is completely, completely broken apart. Okay, and so I, what I'm trying to describe is I think there is a, a psychological uh, effect of all of this, not a literal burning. And if we take Ezekiel 28 as a description of Lucifer, which, which I would like to do, I think that gives us some insight that I ordained and anointed you as the mighty angelic guardian. You had access to the holy mountain of God and walked among the stones of fire. So before Lucifer rebelled against God, he lived in the presence of God. He walked in the stones of fire. Okay, how is Satan going to die? Ezekiel 28:18. You defiled your sanctuaries with your many sins and your dishonest trade. So I brought fire from within you and it consumed you. It's an internal this reflects the internal rebellion that consumes uh, Satan. I let it, I allowed it to burn you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who are watching. So the destructive part comes internally, not externally from God. So, in the Old Testament, who kindles the fire of hell? And I like this quote from Origen, that scripture indicates that every sinner kindles for himself the flame of his own fire and is not plunged into a fire which has been previously kindled by someone else or which existed before him. And there are really two different views of hell if we look at how the Western church evolved on this subject versus the Eastern Orthodox church, which is kind of more as, as I'm trying to describe this. So for those of you that come from a Seventh-day Adventist background, um, I'll just read a, a couple of quotes from Ellen White that, that at least I think uh, are... are well stated in what I'm trying to describe. So that this destruction of the wicked is not an act of arbitrary power. And I think that is so important. Do we just come to the end of history and God says, well, it's over, time to execute all the bad people? Well, that would be a little bit arbitrary. Can we see this as a natural consequence of people who have chosen, who have settled in in their rebellion against God? That the destruction of the wicked is not an act of arbitrary power on the part of God. The rejectors of his mercy reap that which they have sown. God is the fountain of life. And when one chooses the service of sin, he separates from God and thus cuts himself off from life. And it's, it would be our choice, not God's decision. They receive the results of their own choice. By a life of rebellion, Satan and all who unite with him place themselves so out of harmony with God that his very presence is to them a consuming fire. The glory of him who is love 
will destroy them. Okay, and one more, that the light of the glory of God, which imparts life to the righteous, will slay the wicked. Again, that contrast um, so many times. So when we read in Revelation, and, and actually I left out the best part on fire in Revelation, well, I hope we'll get to that this year, but that, you know, we will live here, the, the description is a sea of glass is mixed with fire, that we will live in the very presence of God, okay, face to face, okay, like a fire, with, in, in God's unveiled glory. It's describing something different. What I wouldn't want to take away, though, from the description of hell is that the fire is doesn't last forever. It goes out. Because if we're going to take a verse like this in Jeremiah 31, where God says, I love you with an everlasting love, we want that to be everlasting, to last forever. Okay, But I think we can take the position that the fire is eternal. The fire is everlasting if the fire is the very goodness, the very love, the very person of God. It lasts forever. Doesn't mean that the suffering of the individual goes on forever. Okay, so uh, next time we'll talk about God's wrath. Let's pray. Father, thank you that uh, when subjects like this come up in the Bible, that uh, we don't just have one or two verses here or there, but uh, just a wealth of information to look over. And um, again, I know that uh, what was said here. Uh, that there's a reality that's, that's much clearer on all of this. But for each person, may uh, we just make it our business in this life to understand you more fully, that we can convey your goodness and love to all those around us. Amen.